Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find this discussion to be both informative and provocative. This program is moderated to be politically neutral. Our speakers will give their opinions, and then we encourage you to make up your own mind. This week's topics include artificial intelligence, the history of the penitentiary, and the role of religion in the rise of capitalism. We have three speakers today on artificial intelligence, and I'm also joined by my Penn classmate, Mitch Feynman, who will be the co-host and will introduce the AI panel in a moment. Our three panelists include Michael Lippmann, who is a machine learning and computer scientist at Brown. He will define artificial intelligence and give examples of how to apply this nascent technology. As an example, one use will be with driverless cars that need to distinguish between a plastic bag and a human being for safety reasons. Charles Isbell is the Dean of Computing at Georgia Tech, who will explain how the combination of computers and humans work better together by taking advantage of computers' vast computational power and humans' superb intuition. Computers excel when the objectives are known and defined, but do poorly when the objectives are dynamic. For example, if you want to go from Midtown to Wall Street as fast as possible, Waze is amazing. However, if there is a terrorist attack in progress, the, the rider will likely wish to head in the opposite direction, and Waze will be unawares. But a human can change a plan on a dime. Our third speaker is Saeed Sajadi, an entrepreneur who hopes to profit by employing AI for advertisement insertion and gaming. I hope to learn more from Saeed about the likely business applications for AI. What happens next then moves in a completely different direction. Our next speaker is Lawrence Friedman, who is a professor of law at Stanford, whose research interests intersect legal history and sociology. Lawrence Friedman will discuss his book, Crime and Punishment in American History and the Birth of the Penitentiary. I hope to learn about the old days when we used to a whip and a stockade to punish criminal behavior and how imprisoning bad actors was meant to be more humane. Our final speaker today is Ben Friedman, who is an economics professor at Harvard and the former chair of the department. Ben has a new book released this past month entitled Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. Ben argues in his book that 18th century religious ideas encouraged hard work, creativity, and individual liberty that then influenced Adam Smith and generations of economists thereafter. This long-standing religious influence still affects how Americans think about economic questions. All right, that is today's session. Every month since the beginning of COVID, I've discussed the Bureau of Labor Statistics monthly employment report because it is our best indicator of current economic conditions. And this month was no exception. Job growth in January was pretty much flat. There was a trivial increase in jobs of just only 49,000 people, which came exclusively from the professional and business services sector. Nearly all the other industries were basically flat. Private sector hiring has collapsed after a very strong fall, and I suspect that the government-mandated shutdowns has reduced corporate's desire for hiring. I also suspect that the very slow vaccine distribution has delayed a return to normalcy. And as we discussed on last week's session, the South African COVID variant is heading our way, causing further problems and delays going forward. President Biden, in response to Friday's employment report, said that this month's employment growth rate, quote, it's going to take 10 years to get back to full employment, and that's not hyperbole, that's a fact, end quote. 
I am much more optimistic than the president, as I believe that the labor market will explode after the vaccine is distributed and people are more comfortable going back to work, traveling, and returning to a normal life. I think we should all be pleased that our unemployment rate in the United States is now only 6.3% despite the massive COVID shock. And our labor market has proven to be a surprisingly resilient as workers move between industries. Last week on What Happens Next, Steve Alloy, who runs a major U.S. home builder, mentioned on our call that he had successfully hired workers from the transportation and restaurant industries because low-skilled workers can readily adapt to changes in economic conditions and can also do home building. So I remain quite optimistic about our labor market. Moving on, I want to make a plug for next week's What Happens Next program. The show, the show will cover both antitrust as well as the recent craziness in Game stock, GameStop stock. I want to make an appeal for parents to encourage their young adults to listen to next week's GameStop discussion. Surprisingly, the topic of squeezing short sellers and taking it to the man is of incredible interest to our younger generation. All right. I'm now going to hand the call off to my co-host, Mitch Feynman. Mitch, fire away. Thanks, Larry. The first part of today's panel will examine what for many of us is a fairly abstract topic, artificial intelligence, or AI as it is abbreviated. In broad terms, AI incorporates machine learning and complex mathematics to automate and accelerate processes normally conducted by humans or simple computer programs. AI-like algorithms are already a part of our lives, such as Amazon's suggested products and Netflix's recommended films. We don't seem to be upset when we receive an idea for another book on a similar topic to one we just purchased. We appreciate the recommendation, and it doesn't seem creepy. But for many of us, when we hear about the future of AI, we think about and maybe fear the day that the machines will outsmart us, like in the movie The Terminator. Probably for this reason, one of today's speakers, Syed Sajadi, states on his company website that he is working towards building Jarvis while avoiding Skynet in reference to another popular Hollywood action movie. In addition to Syed, today we will also hear from computer scientist Michael Littman, who teaches at Brown. Michael will tell us about some of the algorithms that AI can help us solve. So, I'm sorry, some of the problems that AI can help us solve. AI applications were successfully integrated into our GPS systems like Waze. Now AI can handle more complex problems, such as driverless cars that can run hopefully without injuring pedestrians. Our second speaker, Charles Isbell, the Dean at Georgia Tech's College of Computing, will talk about how AI works best in conjunction with other systems rather than as a standalone function, most especially humans who are often better at defining or observing situational changes or distinctions between short and long-term objectives. We'll wrap up with Sayed, who founded a company called Enflux.ai in 2018 after working at NASA, where he helped to develop a video analytics platform that his former employer uses for procedure monitoring in the International Space Station. The company is also exploring applications for video entertainment and gaming. With that, let me introduce and pass the discussion to Professor Michael Littman. Thanks so much. Artificial intelligence, AI, sounds kind of fancy and mystical, and maybe that's how it was thought of in the early days and in Hollywood movies, but these days it's really just a subfield of computer science. In computer science, we find better ways of telling machines what we want them to do on our behalf. 
the AI subfield is concerned with solving problems that we think of as involving natural intelligence. Now, one of the unfortunate things about being an AI researcher like me and Charles is what happens once we are able to build a system for solving an AI problem? People realize, wait, I guess that problem didn't actually require natural intelligence after all. I guess it was never AI. Why were you even working on that? As an example, consider a system that can give you turn-by-turn -turn directions between any two places in the United States in fluent English. 20 years ago, that would have been one of the most advanced AI systems around. But now, navigation apps are a commodity, and we don't even think of them as being particularly intelligent. Oh well, recalculating route. The latest round of practical AI breakthroughs are built on a technology called deep learning. To understand what deep learning is, it helps to take a step back and think about the four ways we have for telling a computer what to do. I like to summarize these ideas using an old Reader's Digest quote. The mediocre teacher tells, the good teacher explains, the superior teacher demonstrates, the great teacher inspires. Traditional computer programming uses the tell approach. We give computers explicit step-by-step -step instructions to follow. These kinds of programs are not generally thought of as AI because all of the intelligence is in the choice of instructions made by the programmer. An alternative to telling is to program a computer by explaining. Here, the programmer defines an explicit objective that the program needs to achieve. The computer then gets to select what instructions to follow to accomplish the objective. That sounds a little more like AI, right? That's how we get computers to play board games at an expert level. We write code that defines the legal moves of checkers and the, winning, the definition of winning the game, and then we let the checkers program consider millions and millions of alternatives in search of moves that would result in a win. Because the programmer isn't the one deciding on the specific moves, she can use this explaining approach to create a program that's actually better at checkers than she is. Versions of this idea are used to land planes and even trade stocks. If we can define the rules of the game and the conditions for winning, the computer can sometimes surprise us with solutions we hadn't even considered. In this explaining idea, we still need to write down very precisely what it means to win. An alternative is teaching by example. We can demonstrate the behavior we want and leave it to the computer to figure out instructions that reproduce our decisions or behavior. That's where deep learning has been the most influential. As an example, consider creating a program to recognize pictures of sports cars and images. It's very hard to create explicit instructions that tell the computer how to do it. People have worked on this problem for decades and the results were not inspiring. Now we can collect thousands of photographs of sports cars on the internet and millions of other photographs and ask the computer to find a set of instructions that let the computer pick out the sports cars in the example images. The deep learning approach to this problem arranges the instructions in a simple form where rules look at patches of the image and other rules and decide how strongly to react. These rules bear a cartoonish resemblance to the neurons in our brains, so the collection of rules is called a neural network. The definition of the rules can be iteratively improved so they collectively predict whether they are looking at sports cars more and more accurately over time. Now, you might ask, why do we want a program to recognize sports cars in the first place? But for one thing, it could be useful for a self-driving car to know what kinds of objects are around it on the road. But more importantly, sports cars just stand in for one of 
thousands of possible categories that can all be recognized using the same deep learning technology. The idea of programming a computer by inspiring is a mix of the explain and demonstrate ideas. Here, the computer observes your behavior and tries to guess the objective you use when you make decisions. Then it applies the same objective to make its own decisions. A dramatic example of this approach is used to create programs that produce deep fakes. These are images generated by the computer that are almost indistinguishable from real photographs. The programs are created using another deep learning technique called generative adversarial networks. They take in collections of real photographs and then they try to figure out how we differentiate real from fake pictures. They use this understanding to shift towards generating images that would be likely to be judged as real. This collection of approaches is making it easier for us to tell machines what to do, but they also make it much easier for us to take advantage of each other on a massive scale. Thanks. Uh, thank you very much, Michael. All right, now we're going to, uh, we're not going to go straight to Q&A. We're going to hold off Q&A until after the whole panel is finished. So we're, we're going to head to our second speaker, uh, Charles Isbell from uh, Georgia Tech. Go ahead, Charles. Thank you so much. So let me start by just saying that Michael is absolutely right in everything he just said from the definition of artificial intelligence and our shifting notions around it to the ways in which we tell computers what to do. Now, at some points, uh, he emphasized the computer, and at other points, he emphasized the human. So what I would like to do is to take a moment to consider both the human and the AI together uh, as if they were more of a single unit as a way of understanding the true long-term prospect of where AI can take us. So it's fairly well understood that computers are better than humans at a number of tasks, especially ones involving relentless concentration, like counting. And of course, we work very hard uh, to convince ourselves that humans are also better than computers at a number of tasks, perhaps those involving creativity. Whatever the case, what's interesting is that it turns out that humans working with computers are often better than either computers or humans alone. And this is true even on tasks we might think are better suited for one or the other. So there are a number of examples we could explore here, but let's take one that, that Michael already provided us, a game like checkers or chess. So if you play, pay any attention to this space, uh, you know that computers can beat even our best chess players given enough processing power. And even computers with comparatively little processing power can beat those we would still consider to be expert players. And what you may not know is that we have been able to show in the last few years that humans working with computers can not only beat expert human chess players, they can be computer chess players. And in fact, what's interesting, at least to me, is that the human does not herself even have to be an expert in chess. These centaurs, as they're sometimes known, seem to benefit from the differential skills and expertise of humans and computers, making the whole significantly greater than the sum of the parts. So we might ask ourselves, well, why is this the case? Well, while uh, AI is able to search relentlessly, it is not always good at knowing where to focus that relentlessness. Humans, on the other hand, have broad domain knowledge and understanding across a variety of tasks, something that shouldn't be surprising given that these are human tasks that we're talking about. And that broad domain knowledge and understanding is often enough to know what parts of the search space are worth paying any attention to at all. As such, even the only mildly decent chess player can make the job of the AI chess player much easier, and therefore the outcomes much better than either the human or the computer alone. So consider the earlier example of the sports car. 
it is certainly a powerful idea that humans can provide examples to our deep learners of what makes something a sports car or not. But even more powerful is the idea that it's even worth knowing what a sports car is. Uh, to quote a wise man, it could be useful for a self-driving car to know what kinds of objects are around it on the road. This level of abstraction, of knowing what is important in the first place, is a great source of power in the AI-human partnership. Let's take this example further. We wish to drive to some destination. The machine, the AI, provides us with the route and updates on the fly as traffic and other conditions change. But the AI is not in my head. It does not know when the objective changes and does not know when I want to do something else. Maybe not as dramatic and dire as avoiding a terrorist attack, but perhaps I'd like to avoid a fire or avoid driving through a certain neighborhood or simply drive faster, more consistently, even if it takes me longer to reach my destination. There are many more examples from the very task-driven to the more artistic, uh, such as preferring dunks to layups, even if they both result in only two points or whatever your favorite sports example might be more suited to Super Bowl Sunday. Whatever the case, it is the human who provides these insights. Now, having said that, I, I don't mean to suggest that humans are the only source of insight in this partnership. In my own youth, I would drive from New Jersey to Atlanta many, many times during the year. I'd go along I-95 on the East Coast and connect to I-85 in Virginia and then head south uh, to, to Atlanta. One day, when I was asking for the route, um, talking to MapQuest, uh, I accidentally transposed two digits of my home zip code, which placed my start about half a mile west of where I actually live, only half a mile. Despite that, MapQuest offered me a completely different and seemingly nonsensical alternative involving driving due west for almost two hours way into Pennsylvania before heading south down the turnpike. And yet, it turned out not only to be as good as the usual route that it gave me and the route that I had been taking for the better part of a decade, but even better once one understood the relative aggressiveness of the state patrols in Virginia versus West Virginia. The AI can provide alternatives that the human would not otherwise consider, but can then consider for a better outcome. So finally, as I wrap this up, let me just take a moment to point out that in all of these examples, I've been focusing on a single human and a single AI. In reality, the intelligence system must live not just with a single human, but in a larger ecosystem of hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of other intelligences, some of whom might be human. We're not just driving from here to there. We're not just going from New Jersey to Atlanta. We are driving from here to there along with thousands of other cars on the road, some of them trying to get on the highway when we're trying to get off, some who want to go fast, and some who want to play it safe. True intelligence must be aware of the larger world and collaborate with those around it to meet its objectives, including, by the way, objectives around ethics, culture, and fairness, as well as the more mundane ones involving arriving at a destination as quickly as possible or winning a basketball game or winning a game of checkers. The bottom line here is that the human-AI partnership is complex and powerful. From our point of view as humans, we're providing a form of domain knowledge. We are teaching. Exactly the point Michael was making. Sometimes that teaching is telling, sometimes explaining, sometimes demonstrating, and sometimes it's inspiring. The important thing here as we move towards a future with true AI and true intelligences is that it's worth remembering that when it comes to artificial intelligence, the inspiration can go both ways. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Um, our final speaker on this panel is Saeed Sajadi. Uh, Saeed is founder and CEO of Enflux AI. Saeed, go ahead. 
Thank you, Larry. Um, to build on what Charles and Michael covered earlier, there are two main topics that I'll be going over in the next six minutes. Um, first one is an overview and alignment on the AI terminology, specifically narrow AI and general AI. And the second topic that I'll cover will be around ethical concerns and challenges that we all need to think about when designing or using AI solutions. I'd like to first start by clarifying the terminology and defining what most people mean when they use AI. I'm probably the least qualified panelist here to give a lecture about AI terminology, but just want to clear the water in case there are any confusions. Um, when I'm referring to AI, I'm referring to narrow AI, which is generally an application or software that focuses on one problem. A lot of the hype in the media and Skynet pictures refer to more of a general AI. That's the ultimate goal and vision of AI, which will be a system that can handle a wide range of cognitive tasks similar to human. General AI focuses on creating those intelligent systems that can successfully perform a lot of intellectual tasks. Anything less than that really should be defined as, as narrow AI. What we've seen the past few years is a lot of success in the narrow AI field, from computer vision technologies that can recognize and classify objects even better and more accurately than humans, to AI that won the world championship, uh, the, uh, the ones that both Michael and Charles are referring to, the, in the games of Go, StarCraft, and Dota. But all of these systems are still narrow AI because the system's good at only solving one problem. And if you take the same AI that won the world championship in the game of Go and ask it to write a single sentence that describes a cat or a dog, the system would fail miserably. Um, there are mainly three reasons that have contributed to this amazing um, uh, set of results that we've seen in the field of narrow AI over the past two decades, maybe. One, increase of compute power. <clears throat> two, more data. And three, better algorithms. Um, on the note of better compute powers, if 20 years ago you wanted to build a website like I did, you had to host your own servers and infrastructure. Today, there are great cloud providers like Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud Platform, and, and Azure from Microsoft that handle all of that work for you. And you can host a website or application within minutes, and you can have access to thousands of CPUs and GPUs and TPUs and computing instances at your fingertip. Secondly, more data. I'm sure everyone in the call has heard all the great things about big data, and that's been really another big factor that's helped the growth of narrow AI in the past two decades. Thirdly, better algorithms, mainly deep learning algorithms that have shown to have more effective ways of estimating and modeling different problems. As a matter of fact, both of the examples um, that I mentioned earlier um, for the AI that won the World Championship in the game of Go or StarCraft and the AI that's doing a better object recognition than, than humans, they all use deep neural networks as their main underlying algorithm. There's still many um, obstacles to achieving the goals of AGI, the general intelligence. Um, I think one of the biggest ones um, would be the inability to understand, is our inability to understand our own cognition and how our brain works. We've made, of course, amazing progress over the past few decades towards that, but still there are many more questions that need to be answered. Um, there are different arguments on how to best achieve the goals of general intelligence. Some researchers and companies believe that focusing on narrow AI is the right thing to do, while others believe that they should directly focus on the cognitive architectures and solve for general um, AI. Luckily, because of the great results and, and the hype that we've received in AI, many, many more researchers and brain power and funding um, has been really pushing the field forward. 
while we're making all of this progress, and this is a segue to my second topic, there are many concerns around AI ethics that we should be mindful of as designers, developers, and users of these systems. If we were to break down these concerns into two buckets, one will be concerns around decision-making processes and the ability or inability to explain such decisions once the AI makes them. And the second are concerns around decisions that humans make using AI. To go a little bit deeper on the first one, and provide an example, imagine an AI that's flying an airplane. To be clear, there are already systems that do this. They're called flight management system, but they aren't, they aren't using machine learning yet. In the past few years, however, there's been a great amount of research and development efforts that's gone into using machine learning and reinforcement learning to fly planes. One of the biggest challenges that these systems have to go to production is to get certification from FAA, and the biggest bottleneck there is the inability of these AI algorithms to explain the decisions that they make. The machine learning algorithms are great at using the sensory data on board and then map that to a decision that would be very similar to um, a pilot, and this is already happening for cars. However, since there is no explanation on why that decision was made, these algorithms have been having a hard time getting into production. Um, compared to the older systems that were using if-then logic, and um, of course humans um, could understand those much, much um, easier. The second bucket would be the misuse of AI by humans. The second bucket would be technology isn't really at fault. One concrete example would be the social scoring system that China's been using, using cameras on the street and subways. The government monitors all the citizens and gives them a positive or negative point based on how they behaved. If they cut a lane, they get a negative point. If they pick up a trash, they'll get a positive point. And then the scoring is used to rank the citizens and they'll get rewarded or punished based on that. Um, I'd, I'd like to finally wrap up by re-emphasizing that it is critical for us to make sure that we are mindful of these concerns and are actively thinking about them as researchers and as a society, and at least dedicate the same amount of energy, brain power, and funding to these questions as we do to the technical ones. Thank you, Saeed. Um, I want to uh, open it with a question for you, Saeed, about uh, your first point on decision-making processes. And uh, just out of my own ignorance, I know that uh, Boeing had a, I think it was a 727 MAX plane that got into some trouble. Um, where I imagine there was some flight management system that was not run by humans that was failing, um, and that the pilots were unable to take over control of the plane in sufficient time to uh, prevent a crash. Um, can you kind of maybe explain, is that one of your ethical concerns, is it really ethics, or is it really just a failure uh, in, in how the systems have been operated, and is it just, for you, is that an ethical issue, is that a problem, or is it just a, a failure in the system to, do, to meet its own objective? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So I, I think in, in the example that you mentioned is the failure probably came from um, the human-computer interaction and the teaming there wasn't great. And, and that is something that Charles was mentioning earlier. One of the biggest things that we need to always be thinking about is how to best pair up a human with the AI. And rather than you know, replacing the AI, replacing the human you know, with the AI that is being worked on, how could we augment um, the pilot in this case. Um, and, and also to your point, Boeing, that, that the technology that they've been working on for contingency management, the approach that they've had, to the best of my knowledge, on 787, uh, the Dreamliner has been at least, we want an AI that can be treated as a co-pilot. So then that AI can work with the pilot while being mindful of the work that the pilot is doing and then help them make the best decision that 
um, they have to make. So we, we've sort of seen a couple of these failure examples of, of a flight management system where there's a contingency and the pilot will have to go through literally a 700-page manual book to follow a decision tree on how to handle that specific contingency. And, and this was a uh, this has been a very big problem. So the, the approach that they have been taking is we need to be mindful of the cognitive load um, that the pilot's taking and then use the AI to not add to that load, but rather have a, have a, a virtual co-pilot that can help the pilot in that case. I think the ethical uh, questions or, or the technical challenges in this case are can we use you know, advanced systems that can explain their decision-making processes um, when they do make those decisions? And that's been sort of the challenge that's, that's been happening in, in sort of explainable AI um, that, that's been a big bottleneck in getting a lot of these algorithms certified. Charles, I want to bring you into that. Um, you know, we talk, you're talking about how combinations of humans and machine together are better. Um, when you think about catastrophic results where the human um, kind of either sort of check out, checks out, I'm thinking of those Tesla drivers that are either playing a video game or uh, you know, doing something else than driving and, and crashing the vehicle, or even in that example of a plane crash, um, there was that Air France flight that went from, maybe this is perfectly AI, but there was an Air France flight from Brazil to France that crashed. Um, and it had gotten mixed signals from instruments, um, and the computer had been, um, I guess, forcing it to go up when it should have been going down to regain speed, and it fell out of the sky. Um, how do you think about the fact that we human beings, when we think a computer is only going to call on us in a moment of need, maybe 1% or a hundredth of 1% of the time, um, where we're both mentally and physically checked out and can't do our role in, this, uh, in the teamwork? Well, I think that, that that's a, that's definitely a kind of a key issue in the way that we build these systems. Conceptually, it's not any different from you know the co-pilot not paying attention because you know he thinks the pilot is going to be making some decisions and then suddenly is called upon to make a make a decision. You know, if we think of these as partnerships, and by the way, as human beings, we're very likely to anthropomorphize uh, the machines we're working with um, and sort of treat them in the same way that we would humans. I don't I don't think the problems uh, actually any different. And by the way, it goes both ways, right? You you know, although, um, you know, we had a celebrated, even a movie uh, around a pilot that, that um, got a, a plane to, to land in a lake outside of New York, um, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that the machine actually would have done a better and safer job than, than the human did. So these things can go, these things can go either way. I think I would, I would actually phrase your question and make a point slightly differently, which is that, you know, it's, we, we, we tend to think about these AIs, just get on this notion of narrow and general AI, we tend to think about these AIs, whether they're in partnerships or alone, as if they're going to become these, these general things that will be intelligent. But the, and, and then we worry about those things. But that's not really the worry. The, the worry to me is that we can use these kind of systems to make terrible decisions more efficiently. Right? But that's really, when we look at the, the things that we're suffering with now, the problems that are coming out of the increasing use of, of AI and machine learning, it's that we are just encoding our own terrible decision-making and just making it more efficient, which is what computers are very good at doing. Um, Michael, just to bring you in, um, sometimes when I think of AI, I, I imagine that the, the machine is learning stuff along the way. Uh, we've just used the example uh, of flying a plane. Um, how do you think AI can learn 
uh, about mistakes that are made in the air to, um, to to become a better program. Is that is that something that the uh, that Boeing uses right now? Are, is it gathering this information in real time to improve the efficacy of its of its flying? I really hope not. <laughs> so yeah. the, the the people who deploy these kinds of automatic flight systems are they're you know they're safety engineers and so they there there've been decades of uh, of AI researchers really wanting to have a positive impact on these kinds of systems talking to the people who actually field them and being totally shot down because what they want to know what the engineers want to know is can you guarantee that under no circumstance or under no foreseeable circumstance will this system you know drop the plane out of the sky or basically cause uh instability to happen and we say, well, probably not. And they say, that's not good enough for us. Uh, we're, not, we're not going to let you touch our, our system. So most of the learning that, that's happening, certainly in these mission critical settings, is happening in a very batch or offline setting, right? Where, where data from the flight is being collected and stored, and then it becomes big data that can be processed by machine learners offline. But it's definitely not the case that, that people are fielding, uh, yeah, systems that are, that are adapting in the sky uh, to decide what to do next because, hey, maybe this will work. Going to say, it's just Michael following up on Sayid's point about um, we don't understand the logic of the program. Uh, and I imagine that's going to be true with almost every one of these programs, um, whether it's trading stocks or flying a plane or flying a car. At some point, uh, in, in levels of complexity, uh, the human logical system will make can make no sense of the code itself or what it's doing. Um, but sometimes, as the stakes are incredibly high, the plane could fall out of the air. Uh, we could run over a child with a car. Um, does how does um, we as human beings give up uh, the logical construct where we don't know what we're doing and we don't know why it's doing what it's doing, uh, but we have an expectation that it is safer? Um, is that something that we are going to be able to do easily or not as a public policy matter or as an individual making those decisions? Um, yeah, I think there are a couple of different ways that that's been sort of um, looked into. One is to run a lot of tests. So um, to, to the point that Charles um, made earlier, a lot of these systems are actually safer than humans. And, and you're seeing this as the biggest argument that autonomous car makers are making, and that is, it's not that it's cooler for you to drive an autonomous or be in an autonomous car. It is literally safer for you because of you know, the millions of um, experiments that we've run from getting from point A to point B, they've shown that statistically it's safer for you to be in an autonomous car than, um, than not. And, and that's one side of it. I think that's probably uh, the most um, uh, the logical thing to do to make sure that these systems are safer. Um, for planes, it's also the same thing. So getting the safety um, is uh, running a lot of experiments, whether in simulation or in real life, is the um, biggest thing that's been happening. The other one, uh, which is also interesting, is looking into, as, as Michael was mentioning earlier, what are the imaginable situations within the input space, meaning what are the, what are the situations that we can put the plane in or the car in that are sort of edge cases, and, and then test the results of it. The challenge there, however, is that the, we cannot exhaust the search space because we cannot test for every single weather, for every single lighting, for every single sensor failure. Um, 
And that's been the challenge, but we can, I think, relatively do a good job at that. We cannot explore the whole search space, but that is the second thing that, that's been also done to assure um, that the algorithms are performing well under those conditions. And just going back to the ethical questions, and I know this is sort of, uh, you know, a classic. Um, you know, we've always been asked the question, should we ch change the path? Uh, if we go in one direction, we're going to kill five. If we go in another direction, we, we kill two. Um, and then we hope the, um, the computer kills two. But there's also all sorts of other intermediary steps where, you know, we take a probabilistic uh, odds of running over a dog versus, you know, running over a person, even if it's incredibly trivial. Um, how do we tell the computer or sh um, what are the ethical implications of making those judgments, um, whether it be people or animals or whatnot, as to uh, decisions that make part of his objective tree? Uh, so why don't I start with you on that one as well and then work down the list? Yeah, uh, that, that's a tough one. And, and I think those are, those are the questions that um, – and I, I think about a lot, and, and, and uh, I know a lot of other people that um, are designing AI systems are thinking about all the time. Um, th there are obvious ones, like which is a game of numbers. Okay, if I have two people on one side and five people on the other side, okay, both are horrible choices. But I guess I'm going to go with uh, the two. Um, so th there are the obvious ones that we can look at, but the challenge is that certainty or lack of certainty and, and not knowing that, mm -hmm. um, okay, if I had gone to the other side, there could have been a 5% probability that I wouldn't have hit anyone. Um, and then I think that would be really a challenge on, on how we do it. Generally speaking, I think we humans handle that probably intuitively. Um, and, and for sure, that's, that's a big area that needs a lot of further discussion for um, designing AI systems. Maybe switching subjects a little bit uh, to you, Michael Lippman. You you mentioned uh, the Reader's Digest definitions of uh, different types of programs um, and those that inspire. I'm wondering, do you think, uh, to take Reader's Digest literally, do you think you imagine a world where AI will be in the education business uh, and will find ways to inspire learning uh, relative to other programs? Right. Well, so just to, just to clarify, uh, the, the Reader's Digest quote is from decades ago and is actually about teaching, <laughs> like people teaching people. It wasn't, wasn't meant to be about computers. I just thought it, it echoed really nicely the different ways we have of, of instructing computers because in many ways it's not that different from how we instruct each other. That being said, uh, the question about the role of AI in education is a, is a really exciting topic. I think that um, there's, been, there's been a lot of work over the decades towards a vision of, well, boy, why can't we have a smart computer act like a tutor, right, like a personal tutor? People do seem to do better with their learning when they've got one-on-one -on -one attention. Um, if we can program the computer to be smart about this, it ought to be able to do better than uh, a teacher lecturing to a group of people. And that hasn't really been the case to date. It's actually really hard. The thing that people do to connect and to teach is something that we don't know how to automate particularly well at this point. So it's, at the moment, this isn't, this isn't uh, showing huge gains, but I think, uh, I think there's a lot, you know, there continues to be a lot of interest in trying to get this right. And uh, the opportunities have, have increased of late. I think in the early days, the, the good old fashioned AI days, the idea was, okay, well, I'm a, uh, I'm a smart programmer and I'm a good teacher, so I'm just gonna 
write down as, as a computer program all the great things that I do as a teacher, and then the program will implement it, and it will be fantastic. It turns out that we're not very good at reflecting on our own teaching, just like we're not very good at reflecting on our own ability to, well, solve the trolley problem, which we're probably not very good at, or um, recognize objects. Like, how is it that you know that that's a wolf and not a dog? I don't know. It just looks more wolfy, right? And so teaching is a little bit like that. The way that we've been handling those kinds of problems of late is by using data, right? By having systems learn to basically program themselves. That's the direction that we're starting to go with the teaching as well. The, the, the idea being that we can now gather a tremendous amount of information about how different students online react to different kinds of educational uh, methods, right? Methodologies, like what, how, how, how much did someone's understanding increase uh, once they watched this video or once they read this chapter or once we asked them this quiz? And so now that we have the ability to collect this kind of data, lots of people are starting to look at turning it around and turning it into a learning problem so that we can actually create systems that will make smarter decisions uh, based on exactly that kind of experience. But it's, it's, still quite, it's still quite early at this point. Uh, Charles, this question is for you. Um, you know, sometimes art, uh, or fictional representations of reality can inform us as to some of the problems we're going to have in the future. And um, I've seen one play in uh, the movie Her, uh, where we have a call an artificial intelligence machine interacting with humans to improve the quality of life uh, for the human being. Um, in the play that I saw, um, we had a woman with dementia, uh, and she misses her husband, and they have um, I'll call it a robotic-like figure, obviously driven by AI, which would recall stories and, and give comfort um, to uh, the demented woman as giving a constant, it was as a constant caregiver. And in the movie Her, um, this AI character, uh, you know, dealt with the loneliness of single life and, and provided love and care. How do you think about um, this fictional representation of truth of providing emotional? Uh, support to humans. Do you find that just overly too fictional, or is that something that's going to uh, also be able to solve? So instead of your framework of, uh, you know, what's better than humans or computers, um, is this a combination that will allow humans to find more meaning in their lives? I don't see why not. I mean, in in principle, um, in both of those cases, you're talking about companionship and you're talking about um, someone we can someone or something that can sort of play a role of being a partner uh, in you know this emotional connection uh, that we're looking for I mean there's a question of whether building machine to do that is the right thing to do for the machine if the machine but those are the usual questions we, we end up in, in these conversations but I think that's entirely it's not just entirely possible it's a natural thing that, that we'll want to do I think all of the all of the questions you've asked us recently, and all the conversation that, that we just had, they're really all versions of the same thing, right? I mean, intuition is just another way of saying I don't know what I'm doing, um, or at least I can't explain it. Explainability is about making trust who you are. Um, these kind of ideas of you know, can I educate you? Who's responsible for these outcomes? They're all really sort of circling around uh, the same basic questions of what is the right way to deploy intelligence 
And they're more about that than they are about whether the intelligence is, is possible or not. I actually find it useful when asking all of these kinds of questions to try to pop up a level, imagine about sort of how human beings would work if we had sort of perfect understanding um, and see how we feel about it. So to go to your, your early example about um, autonomous cars and, and, and driving, the problem of self-driving autonomous cars and safety is actually very easy if you just require that everybody drive an autonomous car. If there are no human beings and all the cars are talking to one another and the stoplights are talking to the cars, then this problem becomes significantly easier uh, than the one we have now. We don't even come up against the trolley problem because most of it goes away most of the time. And But I don't know that we're willing to do that, and I don't know that we're willing to take the question you just asked me um, to its kind of logical conclusion. Uh, I'll stop, but let me just put the question back to you. Uh, the companionship is perfectly fine. It makes uh, a lot of sense. I think it's something we'll be able to do, but maybe we should be building machines that are going to satisfy um, people's sexual needs. Maybe we're going, we should be building machines uh, that would stand in for what we would all consider um, possibly immoral and certainly illegal uh, activities that you would otherwise engage in, and that would solve potentially some problems. Do we even want to walk down that path and ask that question? These are policy questions. These are high-level issues of fundamental notions of ethics and, and morality, and they're much less about questions of whether taking the derivative is going to maximize your objective function. Charles, just to follow you up on the, um, I'll call it the transitionary period during the driverless car period, uh, where you have both a combination of driverless cars and I'll call it regular cars, working together compatibly in the environment. Can you see a world, imagine you were the public policymaker, um, you know, it might be difficult to tell people they can't drive their existing car, but it might be much easier to persuade a trucking industry that they had to use driverless trucks. Can you imagine a world where we would have a driverless truck lane um, on the highways and that we would see these trucks, you know, nose to nose going at 80, 90 miles an hour through uh, our urban environments, or going through, I should say, on the, high, uh, on the highway environments, are we going to, uh, because of that, build two separate systems? I'll call it one a, um, a AI system and one non-AI system, one driverless and one non-driverless. And you'll see the, the driverless system flying by at, you know, as fast as it can, and the non-driverless, you know, stuck in traffic looking at those cars going by, at 80 miles an hour going, all right, I give up. i got to go buy one of these new cars. Um, how do you think about that transitionary period? Yes, and in fact, by the way, not just trucks, but public transportation, period. By the way, we have this now. I mean, we have HOV lanes, and some people prefer the HOV lanes, and certainly, you know, in cities like the ones that I live in, uh, it makes a massive difference in your daily commute. I think that if my goal, this is not necessarily my goal, but if my goal were to get everyone to be uh, autonomous vehicles, that's exactly what I would do. I would create very visible parallel um, mechanisms by which if one has an autonomous vehicle, one can get from here to there with no problem whatsoever. I would make it, um, I would take advantage of the kind of governmental infrastructure to do it with um, public transportation. And I would take that one HOV lane and I would make it two and then I would make it three. And then eventually the trade-off would just be obvious. And then you would end up with in parts of the country, in small places, people who still wanted to drive around tracks or whatever uh, would do that, but you would just make it so that the, the outcome is inevitable. I don't know that that's the world that I want to see, but if I were trying to get to a world of um, past the transition, that's exactly what I would do. 
Um, question for Michael. Um, my question actually comes from our, one of our other speakers, Lawrence Freeman. Uh, he's wondering what you think AI, how would it affect the job market? Um, you know, we have a, a number of relatively low-skilled workers in our economy, and we're going to have some very bright AI-related machines that may be able to do that work uh, much cheaper. How do you think about uh, that interaction and what that will do for relative wages for um, low-skilled individuals? Yeah, so, so I'm not an economist. This is definitely an economist question more than an AI question. Uh, but I've spoken with some economists, and the sense that I get from them is that historically, uh, automation, and this is just a, in, in many ways just another form of automation, tends to result in a short-term kind of shock to the system that has the, the negative repercussions that you were just listing. Uh, but then the, the market equilibrates, that people find ways of, of, of earning a living uh, and, and in the longer term, things end up being better for more people uh, at the cost of these really difficult situations in the shorter term. The big concern, as, as I see it, is when these shifts, these, these, these switches to automation happen in quick succession over multiple industries without really a chance to equilibrate. That's what I think we need to be trying to build some policy around to, to smooth that out. Because if we don't smooth it out, we could easily be in a situation where just things keep getting automated out from under us and people are constantly uh, out of work, essentially, because the, the, the job market hasn't re-equilibrated from the previous shock. It's just shock, 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 shock. And so I think that the, the government can play a potentially a very powerful role in smoothing these things out. Um, uh, an example that I that I read about that I that I thought sounded really interesting was uh, automation taking over some of the many of the jobs. This is one that wasn't an AI situation, but in many of the jobs, uh, in a particular. <laughs> sorry, Charles is texting me while I'm talking, which which tends to split my my attention. This is um, what we call it: machine versus uh, human interaction. Go ahead. <laughs> That's right. They're constantly connected. So. Um, <laughs> The, 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 anyway, the upshot of this story is essentially uh, a town that was based very much on uh, a manual labor economy wanted to uh, automate. And what they decided to do was basically continue to pay all the people who had the manual labor job and just pay them until they retired. Um, but all the new jobs, everything, all the, the new system all went uh, with the newly automated version. And so it's, it's really trying to get the bump out for the people who are directly affected by the automation, that's really hard to do, but potentially um, could make a huge difference in, in helping to just yeah, smooth out the, the labor market. Yeah. Question for, <clears throat> go ahead. Uh, Lawrence Friedman, can I ask a question? By the way. Yeah, um, I, think that, uh, I think that the issue, the job issue, of course, it's an economic issue, but it's also and very much so we realize these say a political issue. I mean, the people who are being displaced, I mean, it's okay to say that in the long run, there'll be more jobs. We don't live in the long run. In the long run, we're dead. And so the dislocations, which could be caused, might produce, and I think have already produced, an enormous amount of political turmoil from, uh, we're always told that 
extremism is partly the result of people who are frustrated because the world they were comfortable with has gone away. And that very often is the labor world that they were comfortable with, the world of high-paying factory jobs. So I think it's, it's really not satisfactory just to say either that, oh, in the long run there'll be more jobs, even if that's true, or the government should play a role. Because what role should the government play? And one last point is, Suppose that you have unemployed workers, they've lost their job, and you say, we're going to pay them for the rest of their lives. But people don't want that. They want to work. They want to feel that they're doing something productive. So I think that there's a real problem here that has to be addressed. Michael, you want to come in then? Or? I don't know that we're disagreeing. So, yeah, I think there's All a right. problem, and we need to figure out how to deal with it. All right, I'll move on. Uh, I have another question for Saeed. Saeed, um, I know you're uh, potentially in the ad insertion business, and I imagine uh, how it will work is uh, I will be on, I'll be on Google uh, looking up what play I should see, and I haven't bought tickets yet, and I can't decide if I should go see a show. And then sure enough, when I'm playing a game, there'll be some sort of an insert reminding me that I should buy some tickets for that show. Um, now, Mitch was saying before that somehow when he gets some recommendations, it doesn't feel creepy. Um, but what sort of challenges do we have when, um, you know, where there's this intermingling of, I guess, personal information as it relates to something that's maybe in the open? Uh, I know there's a classic case where a daughter had, had um, just gotten pregnant and she'd done some Google searches for diapers, and then in some other form, diaper advertising started searching at, on the computer, and the father was able to ascertain that she was pregnant. And so how do we sort of limit uh, or protect certain private information as it relates to, I'll call it search behavior, and then how it, uh, new advertisements get inserted in um, a public space? Yeah. Um... To the best of my knowledge and the example that you actually provided, that is a classical one, and that was uh, from Target, and I don't think it was even on a computer. So, so this type of recommendation uh, was being done uh, before. So when you go to a store, um, your uh, uh, purchase and, and all the things that you've bought would be analyzed, and the uh, coupons and the brochure that you get um, is was being personalized. In the example that you mentioned, at least a version of it that I read was that the father found in their mailbox um, some you know diapers, and, and then you know, through through their mailbox they figured that his daughter was pregnant. Um, not not the best way to break the news. Um, and, and and on on the note of personal data, um, I think the very good trend that's been happening with GDPR and CCPA is to provide people with more control over their own data. So understanding um, who's using your data and who's using it for what purposes. Um, I personally am happy with some of the you know, not so intrusive ads um, that I see on different platforms. Um, they, they help me with choosing a better product, whether that's you know, for a health or a fitness application. Uh, or any type of diet. Recently, I've been just getting a lot of keto diet, keto diet um, ads. And I, I would say probably they have 
positively contributed to my overall health and well-being. Um, and, and it is important for us to keep that trend and not really provide just intrusive ads that are not relevant to the user whatsoever just to um, charge the brands for the eyeballs. Um, with that, it's important for the users also to give a little bit more attention to the user agreements that they sign um, and also keep track of their own data and understand Google now provides this. You can, you can just go to your Google dashboard and then actually you know, disable the use of your data on, on Google and they cancel it to any third party. This is already happening in Europe. It's already happening in California, but I think the rest of the country also needs to catch up very soon. Charles, just to follow that same argument with you for a second. So let's imagine that uh, facial recognition uh, gets to be very, very good. And so you uh, walk into Target. Target uh, has learned from Google that you've recently been searching for genes. Um, and just like Michael's phone a minute ago, your phone explodes. Uh, there's a coupon, a two-for-one special on genes in aisle four, um, matching something very similar to the one that you searched for. Um, this is communication between a whole variety of, uh, as you would describe it as, machine systems and the human itself. Um, do you see that as um, something as a force for good? Is that something that's going to be in our future for sure? And then maybe just to layer on top of it, uh, let's imagine that I've been um, arrested for um, theft. And so facial recognition sees me. I enter the store. A uh, security guard comes over and says, I'm sorry, um, you know, you got to leave. Why? What have I done? I don't know. You know, it's like unclear to me, but I've just been given a notice that your face is recognizable and therefore we're going to ask you to leave. And I don't know if I'll a ever be able to say, no, no, that's a doppelganger. That's someone who sort of looks like me. Um, or maybe I have attributes that make me more risky than other people for uh, maybe committing a crime. And I've actually done nothing wrong. Um, how do you think about some of these moral layers as it applies to making predictions from algorithms uh, that may make my life uncomfortable? Well, I'll, I'll just point out that in your second example, we do that now. I don't know how many times you've been followed around in a store, but I've been followed around in a store multiple times in my life. Um, I've been accused of theft. I've been, I've been in this situation more than once, so we're doing that now. Again, this will be a case of making uh, the decisions that people already make uh, significantly more efficient. For the first example, so that's going to happen. So by the way, the answer to both of your questions is yes, this is going to happen. Um, it's going to be widely available. And whether you think it's a good idea or a bad idea, I suspect will depend a lot upon whether it makes your life more convenient or not. In particular, with um, the first case you described of, you know, here are the genes, you know, here's a two-for-one coupon. Well, if the machine is most of the time right, and gives you a coupon and makes it easier for you to get the genes you're looking for, then you're going to be extremely happy with it. And if it's mm -hmm. bad at it, you're going to decide that it's spam. I mean, the biggest problem right now is that clearly somebody is following all of my searches as they keep offering me coupons for things I've already bought. Now, if they had done that before I had bought them, maybe I would be okay with it. But it's, you know, whether it's useful or not is, is something else. So the question of the kind of ethics and morals around it, I think it's an interesting question. It's sort of, I think, the question for all of us in the future. And I, but I think that we're going to answer that question in a very practical way about whether we think as individuals it helps us or not. And I will point out that two things. One, the ads are very visible, but the amount of information that Tesla, Apple, 
Google and everyone else we know and care about has on all of us is enormous. They know what we're going to do before we do it, um, and they're very they're very good at, at leveraging that. And a lot of the time, uh, it's it's invisible. So it's unclear to me um, that we have really thought very hard about, or even have the tools and language to decide how we want to deal with this as a society and as a culture. Uh, but I I think that in the end we're just <laughs> the truth is we're going to go with whatever's most convenient. Michael Lippman here. If I could just jump in for a second. Uh, I, I think Charles is focusing on the impact on, let's say, the consumer. My, my worry, and, the, and there's already plenty to worry there, but my worry is that the, the decision makers here are the companies, right, so, the, so Target, say, um, and they're not making decisions necessarily that are in our best interest. They're making decisions that are in their best interest. And I was wondering if, if Saeed had any thoughts about what are the forces that are that are that are encouraging companies that are deploying AI to be ethical and, and, and to concern themselves with the, uh, the rights of, of people? Or are, are we in the middle of a losing battle? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I, I think one is for sure, uh, the very basic one, regulations. So now for every single European customer, there's GDPR and the customers that have their data in California. We have the California Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA, that's in place. So following the regulation, because otherwise there's a $25 million penalty, that, that's the very first thing that I think all businesses would want to follow. And then the second one um, is, is the communication that comes with the partners. So us as an as AI company, we work with other businesses. We don't, we're not a consumer product company. We're a sort of B2B company. Working with those partners that are mindful of their customer data and they themselves are also following the regulations and are also open with their customers. For instance, if we are working with a, um, a, a customer in the security space that has access to tens of millions of cameras around the states, we want to make sure that that business customer is disclosing to their consumers that, hey, by the way, we're sharing your data with this AI platform and they're going to you know, help you provide help us provide you this you know, an intelligent um, solution. And having that disclosure, not on the 43rd page of the user agreement, I think is very important, and being able to disclose that upfront so the customers can make that decision um, and understand, okay, do I want this? And am I okay with this you know, third-party company using my data so I can get you know, this and that feature? I think those are the two pieces that realistically incentivize companies. We want to follow the regulations and we want to uh, follow the, uh, the the taste that the consumers have and want to be transparent with them. Michael, question for you. Um, I imagine that as this thing begins to evolve, there's going to be sort of like an opt-in or opt-out. And if those people who are very concerned about privacy, they can opt out of the coupons, the target, they can opt out of, uh, you know, getting recommendations from Amazon on what books to read, or they can opt out uh, or pay extra in their gaming applications not to have advertisements. Um, but that said, I, it seems to me that there's a gen my question really relates to generational preferences. It seems to me that uh, my father's generation um, are very concerned about aspects of their privacy, almost uh, religiously so. Um, but my children um, seem almost completely indifferent or uh, don't care. Uh, about their loss of privacy. Um, how do you think about this generational shift 
of the behavior. Do you think that the older generations were more concerned by 1984-like concerns and the younger generation, uh, uh, that concerns have gone away as they, they haven't seen or been abused yet? So my understanding is that Charles has has some uh, insights about generational preferences. Charles, do you want to jump in or do you want me to get us off track? I'd, I'd love for you to go off track. I mean, as far as I don't know if they're insights, but I do completely agree with the observation that this is changing generationally. Um, it's certainly true with my kids. They're, I, I, at first, I thought they just weren't aware of how much information they're giving out, but they absolutely are. They just don't care. I mean, and I think I care a lot less than the people who than my mother does about about certain things, and that's just maybe the and way it's going. Wait, so, and just to, to, since I, I invited you in now, now I'm trying to step on you. I'm sorry, but I wanted to just say that I, I don't know that it's a, a clear like not care. I think it's I think there's a there's a cost benefit analysis of sorts, right? That says sure you can opt out and you can kind of opt out of a lot of this stuff now, right? You can always use uh, you know the Google in that mode that sort of dark spy mode where it's, it, it can't track you, but nobody does that, partly because you lose out. There's things that you miss out on by not participating in this, in this uh, I don't know, this information economy. And so I think for many people, it's like, well, I could opt out, but I can't afford to. And so they're kind of forced into it. It's not, it's not as, as free a choice as it feels like. Sorry. I think that's right, Michael. If I could just, just quickly, sorry about that. Uh, I think that's right, Michael, but I'll also point out there's the other end of it is, what do I want the privacy for? I mean, at a, there was a point in time that if people knew certain things about you, it meant you could never be a Supreme Court justice. We're moving into a future where people can know those things about you and you can still be a Supreme Court justice. So if the consequences for large swaths of things that you used to think of as secrets are no longer secrets, then um, maybe it just matters a lot less. I mean, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a good thing that we don't care as much about the things that we used to care about before. In case anyone on the on the call is, I'm not thinking of any specific Supreme Court justice. It's just an example of something that popped in my head. No, but it does seem, and I think it's interesting. Why um, does this our younger generation, who face similar trade-offs, um, seem to not care about their privacy as much? Or have they bought into uh, Google's belief that uh, first do no evil? Do they trust the companies not to do evil? Or do you think it reflects a difference in their own utility function as it relates to privacy? <coughs> Charles, just for have you repeat, continue on it. Uh, I think it's their utility function. Um, I, that, that's what I'm getting, at least listening to my children. So that's, hard, that's anecdotes, not data. Although I do think there is some evidence that um, the younger generation thinks about these things very differently from older generations and the things that they think are important to keep to themselves or not. But again, you could ask yourself the question, if we lived in a world where there were no secrets, would that be a better world? And some people very much think that's true. And some people very much think it's not. My guess is the, the lines, the percentages and the proportions have definitely changed over the last decade or so and probably going to continue to change. And we'll just see where, where it comes out of. I don't have a strong opinion about it um, because I, I just don't have a strong opinion about it. Trying a, a different uh, path. Um, Saeed, um, when you th you're in the business of applying AI technology to solve business problems, and when you look out there uh, in the field of opportunity, 
where do you think the richest and most fertile ground for AI applications uh, is with regards to uh, business applications? Um, well, generally speaking, there's a thing I think in the advertising business that um, if your revenue is not growing fast enough, just turn into the ad business. And I think that's exactly what a lot of AI companies have done. Um, so ad technology definitely has, has been an area um, of, of growth for a lot of ad tech companies. Um, security has always been one. Um, using cameras to understand um, what are the activities that are happening in front of the camera, whether someone's breaking in, um, is there a fight on the street, um, so on and so forth. Um, the ones that we are also passionate about, and this is sort of um, the, the very first customer that we had is the space industry, um, using AI for um, space, um, very similar to how we're using it for um, cars and planes, uh, getting autonomous system on the spacecraft. Um, however, I'm not sure about the size of that business, and probably the number of customers are very limited to three or four um, space companies, like the, the NASA's and the SpaceX's um, of the world. Um, and I think one that I'm um, particularly very um, excited about is um, seeing a lot of the um, AI algorithms and, and, and re reinforcement learning breakthroughs that we've seen um, in StarCraft and Dota to be applied wider to, to games. So rather than having just easy, medium, hard, predefined you know, AI rules for FIFA or NBA or any of these other games, having um, uh, world champion AIs to be integrated into the games that can help with, um, with the players. I think those are the couple of the areas that I can think of. In your talk and his example of ethical issues, you mentioned cameras on the street. Um, we had a, a, a discussion with Robert Vargas, who's a sociologist at the University of Chicago, and he mentioned that um, that minority communities in Chicago uh, are demanding more cameras on the streets uh, to reduce local crime. Um, do you think that if AI, facial recognition improves, um, that it will be revolutionary in crime reduction in terms of informing the police that there's trouble going on in the streets, making predictions uh, of where to extend resources? Uh, we also had another um, discussion with Peter Moskis, who told us that um, in Baltimore, when he was a police officer, they would be receiving millions of 911 calls a year, and the police were had really no ordering of how to deal with problems. Um, could AI be helpful uh, for police enforcement to send uh, the cop cars into certain areas to, to minimize crime? How do you think of it in the terms of criminology and crime reduction? Yeah, th there's been a couple of experiments, especially in the um, on the East Coast side, and, and New York is the one that um, I'm remembering. Um, uh, for sure, it can be used uh, within the police departments. However, it is important to um, uh, not arrest someone before they commit a crime. Um, and is that and a I think that's movie? A, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> um, it, it's important, I think, to use if you want if if they have resource allocation problem, which is always the case, um, and they want to prioritize AI to understand, okay, if I'm receiving you know, these many 911 calls, which one should I really prioritize and 
which one will have a higher chance, which neighborhood or zip code at this point in time, given the things that I've heard and received historically, are going to have the highest chance of an actual crime, then yes, for, for all means, um, in terms of resource allocation, but not, um, you know, arresting people before, before they do things. So just, you know, the, the, the obvious um, ethical boundaries, I think, as uh, long as they're being met, um, they're, um, uh, they can be quite helpful in criminology. Another one is the body cam. Um, there are a couple of companies that have, start analyze, have started analyzing the body cam, um, uh, body cameras that uh, uh, cops put on and to help to go through millions of hours of content and then see if there's been um, any incidents uh, that they need to provide attention to. Uh, before we wrap up uh, this panel on AI, I thought I would go around uh, in this, in this, within this one panel and ask what are you most optimistic about um, in this machine learning AI world? Um, and Michael, let me start with you. As you think about your field, um, what are you most optimistic about how it will improve uh, human life? Well, my hope is that, uh, that, that at some point we're going to get to, we're going to start a push for something more like universal programming literacy. The idea that we all should know how to tell our machines what to do. Just like it turns out to be a really valuable thing for citizens to be able to read and write, I think it's a really valuable thing for people to, for people to be able to tell machines what to do. Uh, at the moment, the companies are much better at this than we are, and I think that's part of the manipulations that we're seeing. If, um, if we can get to the point where, uh, where more people have more control over the computers, I think then that, that's a good thing. That's, that's, that's more empowerment for, for individuals. And I feel like AI technology as it exists could help us get there. It could help bridge the gap between the complexity of current programming and regular people, all of us, being able to tell machines what it is that we want them to do on our behalf. Thank you. Charles, what are you optimistic about in AI? Well, Michael stole my answer. Uh, that's almost <laughs> exactly, not quite word for word, but what I was going to say, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll put a tiny spin on it, which is I think both in the sort of educational space, but, but also in the kind of ability to stand up to larger organizational forces and institutional forces, I'm hoping that as we move along this path, uh, we will be able to allow individuals you know, enhance individuals' ability to make reasonable decisions um, and to understand what's going on. So even though there's an enormous amount of power for, I don't know, Amazon to know everything about what I'm buying, there's actually an enormous amount of data that's out there that also tells the individual about Amazon. Um, I'm not picking on Amazon, I'm just staring at a screen that has Amazon on it right now. And I think that, you know, there's a good chance that if we can connect everybody to these tools and we can actually democratize uh, this sort of power, at least when it comes to analysis and making somewhat better decisions. That's my hope anyway, and I think it can happen. Saeed? Um, I think two things that, that have made me really excited and, and hopeful for the future of AI are the, um, uh, the things that happened over the past two or three years. One was using AI uh, to recognize the black hole in the middle of our own galaxy. That was amazing. Um, and the second one was um, AlphaFold uh, that was released a, a few weeks slash months ago. Uh, generally speaking, I'm, I'm most hopeful to see more applications of AI in other sciences, uh, specifically uh, life sciences and, and biology in a way that it can help with longevity and, and, and life expectancy and, and can help with um, solving and, and curing 
um, a lot of diseases. Um, I think the power of information processing that um, AI has and, and pattern recognition can really help us um, get an edge there and accelerate our, our learning um, life sciences as well as other sciences. All right, thank you to our AI panel. Um, and now we move on to our next topic uh, with Lawrence Friedman as our speaker. Lawrence is a professor of law at Stanford Law School, and he is the author of Crime and Punishment in American History. Lawrence, uh, please go ahead with your remarks. Sure. Okay, for the last couple of decades, there's been a boom in the prison population in the United States, and we now have two million people in jail or prison and millions more that are on probation or have been on probation. And there's been a lot of criticism, quite justified, I think, that the system is unfair to people of color. The mass incarceration is or should be a major social issue. No other advanced democratic society locks up so many people. So it's a specific American problem. It's also a race problem. On the other hand, every country has prisons, and it might be useful to take a glance at the history of prisons. I don't think that history, uh, I don't want to uh, cast a, a befoul my own nest, but I don't think history solves present problems, but I think it elucidates them. So. Most people think that there always have been prisons, but this is actually not true if we think of places like San Quentin or Sing Sing. In our colonial period, and well into the 19th century, there was, it was not a normal way of punishing people to lock them up. They punished people by whipping them, by shaming them, putting them in the stocks, branding them with a hot iron, wearing the scarlet letter, and hanging the worst. But all of this was done in public, and it was all meant to show a message. Punishment was didactic theater. The jails, there were jails, but they had two basic uses. People who couldn't pay their debts, and people who were waiting for trial. And the jails were usually just houses. Many weren't even particularly secure. So the 19th century invented the big house, the penitentiary. And one of the earliest and most notable was Eastern State in Philadelphia. It opened in 1829. It's now a historical site. You can tour it if you want. It has a famous Halloween party. But it gives a very good indication of what the first great prisons were like. So this penitentiary was something completely new and different. It was completely different from the colonial system. It was a massive building with high walls. It had guards standing on the walls and guards inside the prison. The regime was one of total regimentation. Prisoners wore the same clothes, ate the same food. It also ran on the silent system. Prisoners were not allowed to speak to each other, to a guard, or to anyone. In Eastern State, a prisoner, when he entered, put on a uniform, went to his cell. If he was sentenced to five years, he never left the cell. 
meals were brought to him. He worked during the day. There was labor, but it was within the cell. So Eastern said was a bit unusual. In the other prisons, they followed a different model. In Sing Sing, for instance, the prisoners worked outside during the day, breaking rocks, for example. But here, too, the system was silence and total regimentation. So why did this happen? What was the theory behind this? So the colonial theory was that the community helped solve the crime problem by making an example of people. But in the 19th century, the population had grown. We had cities filled with strangers. There were gambling dens, brothels, urban mobs. So the elites began to think that society was no longer the cure for crime. It was, in fact, the cause of crime. So the solution was to rigorously separate criminals from society. At the same time, there was a wholesale rejection of bodily punishments. Whipping, branding with hot irons, that was all considered barbaric. And punishing through imprisonment was thought to be more modern, more civilized, and more effective. The death penalty remained. It was hanging. But it was no longer done out in the public square. It was moved into the yard of the jail or prison. And the only people who saw it were a few witnesses and then some kids who would climb to rooftops or at the top of trees. And later on in the 19th century, the electric chair was invented and the death penalty became all but invisible. It was carried out deep inside the prison with a handful of witnesses. Now, of course, a lot has changed over the years. The silent system didn't last. There are many different forms of prison, but the essential system remains in place. And the keystone of the whole system of punishment is imprisonment. This is how we punish people who break the law. So it's an expensive system, both in terms of the buildings and the costs, and it's also extraordinarily expensive in social terms. It's also, and this has been shown, deeply racist. So we have to ask the question, we have to begin by assuming that the prison system is not something that has to be, that is, has always been and always will be. Nonviolent criminals are the majority of those who are in prison. Is there no alternative? Maybe it's time to take the system not for granted, but to re-examine it from top to bottom. Lawrence, thank you. Um, I want to start with a concept of in, being inhumane. Um, you mentioned that um, wearing a scarlet letter or whipping uh, was considered, uh, or I could call it bodily harm, was considered um, inhumane and that locking someone up for five or ten years uh, is not inhumane. Yeah. Um, did we get, did we as a society get that wrong? Um, would we be better served uh, by finding something that, well, maybe start at the beginning. Do you feel that locking someone for five years is inhumane? I think it usually is inhumane. And, uh, and you know, ask yourself the question, 
if you committed some minor crime, this is nothing big, and you're given the choice, two years in San Quentin or 10 lashes on the, your back, and that's it. I, I think most people would choose the 10 lashes. I mean, it's a question why, and I have no real answer, why it was decided that punishing the body was barbaric and inhumane, but locking the body up was not. Uh, now, when you talk about the scarlet letter, that, uh, there is a somewhat different issue. That's a shaming punishment. And the reason we abandoned shaming punishments was not because we thought they were inhumane, but because we thought they were ineffective. In other words, um, when you have the scarlet letter, that, was, that took place in a tiny community where everybody knew everybody. So if you, if you adopted, a, say, a scarlet letter notion, in modern the U.S., a person would just simply move to another state, or could, and then take off the letter, and then the heck with it. And so shaming punishments usually depend on a small, close-knit community. We don't have that anymore. I mean, we have large urban communities. That's where most people live. So it's okay in a schoolhouse if you put a dunce cap on a kid and sat him in the corner. I mean, that might be effective. Maybe not. But anyway, that wouldn't work in in the largest society. So the penitentiary came out of uh, the notion, first of all, that bodily punishment was wrong, inhumane. Shaming punishments didn't work because people would laugh at them or you could just move. or They, they were simply ineffective. And that the root cause of crime was being in bad company, associating with drunkards, drinking, gambling, whoring, and so on. And the way to solve that was to force you into this kind of monastic life. But, but then it became, over time, accepted. This is the way we punish people. This is what you do to people who break the law. Of course, we also have fines, probation, and so on. But we still, we're locking up people by, by the millions. Just to follow that up, um, you mentioned that studying the past is illustrative but may not have solutions, but maybe there's there's kernels we can learn from it. Um, we went down a path of locking everybody up and throwing away the key, and now we recognize as a community that this is probably a failure. But we still want to um, reduce crime, and we want to reduce crime at the cheapest possible cost. I think you're right. In large cities, um, it's difficult um, because of anonymity to get the full shame that you do with, with that dunce cap in the schoolyard. Uh, but what if we put the... Um, what if we put the dunce cap in your, you know, in a public housing project, for example? We do it right in front. Mm-hmm. Or I live in a small town of Glencoe, Illinois. If if we if we did it in the village square, um, it still might be effective. I find shame to be a very effective means of punishment. Um, is there a way we could bring back shame, which is much cheaper and potentially, um, you know, less problematic than the prisons? Yeah. Now look, uh, there have been attempts. To do a little something along those lines. Now, for instance, suppose uh, suppose you published in the newspaper the name 
of men who had gone to a prostitute. Well, there are two problems with that. That, that can be very shameful, particularly if it's, if it's a minister or something. But for many people, a lot of people will say, well, who cares? Well, I mean, it's a little embarrassing, but so what? I mean, you have, in order for shame to work, there has to be a community of people that will accept the shame as shameful. And that's something that I think has become rather dubious. In, in many regards, a lot of kind of sexual offenses and so on, although they can be, they can be brought back. Uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that shame isn't useful, it, but it can't be used wholesale. In particular, we're locking up thousands of people for minor drug offenses. We have really very severe punishments for minor drug offenses. And those drug offenses are not anything that produce shame in most communities. I mean, there's been a big change in public opinion, but, you know, how many people really think that if they found out that uh, most 17-year-olds have tried pot, uh, feel that, they, that this is something extraordinarily shameful? And yet in many places, if that came to light, the person could be locked up for years. Anyway, I'm not, I wouldn't say that shame, there have been attempts to use shame. Uh, drunk drivers get a special license plate that practically says, I'm a drunk driver. Well, you know, does that work, I wonder? So, um, just as an aside on, on drunk drivers, um, I live in the state of Illinois, and uh, on the Illinois prison website, they have a spreadsheet uh, you can download it. It gives you the names and the crimes and the term remaining for every single individual in um, Illinois prisons. And you can, uh, you can look at it by types of crime. And so I looked at DUIs. Uh, and it turned out that in the entire Illinois prison system, uh, there were very few DUIs of people actually in jail. Yeah. Um, you know, it was like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was 25 or something out of the 25,000. Mm -hmm. um, and when I looked at what the DUIs were, it was like uh, D eighth DUI conviction. Mm -hmm. um, he uh, was driving without a license uh, and committed uh, – and was also involuntary manslaughter. Mm -hmm. I mean, my God, you know, we, they have those signs up on the highway, you know, you're going mm -hmm. to jail if you drink and drive. But the reality is something quite different. Um, it is very rare, in fact, to do that. Right, right, you're right. And if you looked at the rest of the records, now, of course, I'm not in Illinois, and I, I haven't looked at these records, but I'm sure that if you looked at the drug offenses, you would find that uh, the vast majority of them were, were African Americans and Hispanics. And DUI is a crime which is not associated with non-whites particularly. And I think that there's a really differential in in how you treat these offenses. Um, but that, that gets us into a whole, whole other can of worms, uh, uh, something which is deeply wrong with the present punishment system is how racist it is. Uh, uh, but even if you took all of the African Americans 
and Hispanics out of the prisons, you'd still have a rate of incarceration for white people, which is much higher than, say, in Finland or Japan or Australia. And it's an interesting question as to why we are so committed to locking people up. I want, you, you mentioned the fact that in uh, the good old days, um, hangings were public, um, yeah. but today well, it wasn't we kill people in private. No, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm wondering, um, you know, why why we do that? Um, I, I find it sort of obnoxious that we kill people, um, and the public is sort of unawares. Um, do you think we, sh- if if we continue with capital punishment, do you think it should be more public, or do you think it makes more sense to have people killed inside the building with few witnesses? I think it makes more sense not to do it at all. I, I don't. I think there's no there's no room for capital punishment, and it's dying out. It, it is literally dying out. We now have, I think, the latest count is 20 states that have abolished it. Then you have states like California where it's on the books, but no one has been, I think it's been almost 20 years, and the present governor says no one will be executed while I'm governor. And most of the states have only, are just basically not executing anybody or hardly anybody. The numbers are going down, down, down. Uh, During the last month or so of the Trump administration, uh, the president and his people got the idea, wouldn't it be nice to execute a lot of people? So for year 2020, curiously enough, federal executions were more than the total in all the states. Now, the state with the most execution has always been historically Texas. Texas accounts for about a third of all executions since 1976 when the death penalty was reinstated. Uh, but even Texas, they're not doing it much anymore. So I think it's dying out. Um, you know, it's, it's, certainly, it's interesting. I certainly wouldn't say bring it back in public. No, I, that's, frankly, I think that's barbaric. Yeah. Interesting. So what, um, in your original edition of, uh, in 1995 for this book, yeah. uh, you mentioned that the trends had been going the other way, that capital punishment had a resurgence in uh, right. public support. Yeah. Um, and I wonder uh, That's what's been going reversed. on. Okay. Is it, and my question is, is it the public that's changed its mind, or is it that the elites view it as repugnant, and the elites are sort of in control of the of the of the killing. So, you know, the fact that the governor of California says there'll be no killing on my watch, but um, if we ask the people of California, do you want uh, public executions in general, uh, they might be supportive. Is there a breakdown between the elite decision makers and the public at, at large? Yeah, well, I hate to admit it, but there is something in that, but in fact, there was a, a, a referendum on the death penalty in California, and to the dismay of the people who are against capital punishment, most people voted to keep it. So 
So you could say, okay, the people of California still like the death penalty and the governor doesn't and a bunch of professors don't and bleeding hearts don't and so on. But the fact is that if you ask people, are you in favor, or you give them a referendum, you're not really giving them a, a good choice. If you said to people, would, uh, if you gave people the information about what it costs, how long it takes to execute anybody, and the fact that there are alternatives, most people think incorrectly that if you sentence someone to life in prison, they get out after a few years on parole or something that's not true. Uh, and I think they just haven't thought very carefully about about the question. So I would say that the people who have thought about the question are against the death penalty. And then it becomes a political issue. If you want to label yourself a law and order person, you, you say you're all in favor of it. But I think that most people are not particularly in favor of it. If you push them, they'd say, well, I guess it's okay. But I don't think there's any deep feeling for the death penalty in my state, for sure, or in Illinois, okay. for that matter. Well, for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. With that, I'm going to turn to our next speaker, uh, Benjamin Freeman. Ben is a uh, professor of political economy, and he was formerly chairman of the Department of Economics at Harvard University. Uh, ben, uh, why don't you tell us about your new book, um, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism? Thanks, Larry. The question I take up in this book is where modern Western economics came from. The answer that I propose is somewhat surprising, at least to me it was and to many other people. I certainly accept that the origin of modern Western economics came in the latter half of the 18th century with a group of thinkers centered around Adam Smith, but importantly including David Hume. And I point also, as many other people do, to Smith's great book, The Wealth of Nations. Where I depart from the consensus is that instead of thinking that because Smith and Hume and their contemporaries were products of the Enlightenment, which they surely were, and because we view the Enlightenment as the movement away from thinking in terms of a God-centered universe to what we in our modern vocabulary call secular humanism, uh, the standard view is that therefore the forces that gave us modern Western economics had nothing to do with religion. And instead, I argue that Smith and his contemporaries were powerfully influenced by what were then new and, importantly, highly contentious and contended ideas in the religious realm in the English-speaking Protestant world in which they live. And the specific new trend of thinking that I point to is the turn away from predestinarian Calvinism, meaning the belief that people have no ability to influence at all whether they are saved in the afterlife, that that decision of whether any individual is saved or not 
whether a person is going to be uh, in heaven or sentenced to an eternity of uh, suffering uh, is made before they were born, indeed before the world was ever created. And about starting about 100 years before Smith, but then in a way that percolated up from England into Scotland where Smith lived and then into the United States, the new thinking was, no, that wasn't true. That people very much through their choices and their actions were able to affect whether they were saved or not. And I argue that this expanded and I believe much more optimistic view of human nature and of the possibilities for human agency opened the way for the new economic thinking in which Smith understood that people acting on nothing more than their own self-interest but behaving under conditions of market competition were able to make not only themselves but other people uh, better off. Now, to clear up a potential misunderstanding right away, I am well aware that Adam Smith and David Hume and most of the people that we are talking about as the early creators of modern Western economics were anything but religiously committed individuals. We know all these people were celebrities in their own lifetime, and so we know a lot about them biographically, and they were not. So my story is absolutely not that this happened because religiously committed individuals set out self-consciously to bring their religious ideas to bear on their professional thinking. It's rather that they lived in a world in which religion was much more central, more pervasive, more uh, multidimensional than anything we know, and moreover, intellectual life was more integrated then. They didn't hive off the theologians in universities uh, the way they do at my university, or for that matter, at the University of Chicago. University of Chicago has a very famous divinity school, but it's a separate uh, faculty. Well, that wasn't true in those days. And so I think the fact that these new religious ideas were so highly contended, they were not only argued for, they were fought over, and lots of people died for them, and therefore they influenced the thinking of Smith and his contemporaries. And then to bring the story down to the present day, I argue that this right-from-the-ground-up influence of religious thinking on economic thinking had a huge influence in shaping the way uh, economics as an intellectual discipline evolved right through the 19th and the 20th centuries as the structure of the economy changed, and therefore, of course, the questions that economists ask changed along with it. But I believe this influence of the religious thinking from the ground level was still there. And I think it's still here, especially in the United States, and less so in the thinking of professional economists, but in the normal way these things work in uh, the evolution of sciences. It's, tr- it's present in our public conversation about economics. It's present in our debate over economic policy. And I think it helps to explain this puzzle, which has fascinated many people, me included, about why so many of our fellow Americans seem to 
hold policy views and to vote in ways that run counter to their economic self-interest. So the idea is that counter to the usual story, there's been a right from the beginning influence of religious thinking on economic thinking, and it's lasted for 250 years, and it's still here. Thanks, Ben. Um, I guess I'm going to start out with your last conclusion. Um, in your book, you reference uh, Billy Graham and the book What's Wrong with People from Kansas, uh, who appear to support um, an end to death taxes, low marginal tax rates, uh, when it really doesn't influence them. How do you uh, explain why uh, the correlation of religiosity and conservative economic views? Why do they go hand in hand? Well, let me, uh, first place, let me uh, be clear. It isn't religiosity so much as which particular stripe of religion people adhere to. And the standout in the uh, data that I review in the latter part of my book is the evangelical, Protestant evangelical community. You mentioned things like opposition to estate taxation. That's an absolutely fascinating one. It's not surprising that groups with higher incomes are more opposed to estate taxation than groups with lower incomes. To me, that makes perfect sense. And if you look at various groups across the American society, that's by and large true. The one group for whom it isn't true is the evangelical Protestants. Evangelical Protestants have quite low incomes compared to the American population as a whole, lower incomes even than Democrats on average. But the opposition to estate taxation among American Protestant evangelicals is very strong, stronger even than the national average. So I think it's clear that what matters is what particular theological beliefs one subscribes to. Now, if I should just say something about Billy Graham, because you asked uh, about him, uh, I found that a very interesting part of the story, because Billy Graham was one of the spearheads of the movement in the last century when religious conservatism and economic conservatism came together right around the middle of the last century. And my explanation for that is that both groups realized that they were fighting a common enemy, namely the threat of world communism. One group saw uh, communism as the antithesis of Western religion, and they were right. And the other group saw communism as the antithesis of American free market, uh, free enterprise economics. And they were right, too. And I believe that what happened in the middle of the 20th century is that these two groups under came to understand that they were fighting the same enemy, and that's what brought them together. Um, I want to go back to Adam Smith next. Sure. Um, he tells, uh, and you quote his, I think probably his most famous quote, that the baker doesn't bake and the butcher doesn't uh, get you the meat out of his love for you. He does it out of pure self-interest. Um, and Smith says that's okay. That self-interest is what's going to drive productivity and the specialization, um, and it's going to give you a whole bunch of consumer choices that you would otherwise not get. How does that um, concept of specialization, growth, um, 
fit in with, I'll call it 18th century religious ideas, uh, that this is something that we should embrace, where those same ideas um, may not um, fit well at, at maybe even your university today uh, in its ideals. Well, first place, I think you stated Smith's view exactly correctly. Uh, Smith understood that the key driver of behavior, especially in the economy, was self-interest. Smith has this lovely statement in uh, Wealth of Nations in which he says that the desire to better our condition, that's his phrase for it, to better our condition, comes with us from the womb and it stays with us until the grave and there is scarcely an instant in between when we're not subject to it. And of course you could interpret bettering our condition in a variety of ways, but he then goes on to make very clear that it's our economic condition that we seek to better. Now, other people had this uh, insight too, that this is what drives economic activity, Um, uh, Bernard Mandeville, for example, had that same insight 75 years earlier. So what was new about Smith? Smith's contribution was to understand that the mechanism that allows my acting on your, my self-interest to make you better off and your acting on your self-interest to make me better off and so forth throughout the economy is competition carried out in markets. Uh, This was a generation of people who were trained to think in Newtonian terms of system and mechanism. And before Smith, people, people knew this was true, but they just had no idea why it was so. And it was Smith who very carefully worked out the nature of competition carried out in markets And he showed that that's what allowed people acting on no more than their own self-interest, no altruism involved, to take actions which make themselves as well as other people better off. So it was a remarkable insight, and it's the insight that remains at the core of modern Western economics 250 years later. You also mention in your book um, that Smith is very questions people that – uh, or corporations or economic activities that is not in their self-interest, that, that very rarely advances human behavior. Um, how should we think about, uh, for example, we're going to have in a couple of weeks uh, people out saying that we should change corporations from being profit maximizers to maximizing community values. Would that run counter to uh, a core Smith belief? Well, Smith had these scathing things to say about the behavior of businessmen. I mean, there, were, there weren't corporations uh, in his day to speak of, but, uh, f- but it's all part of the same story, that Smith believed that competition in markets is what gave uh, the economy its power to make people better off. And he saw, Smith was a very insightful guy, and he spent a lot, spent a lot of time uh, interacting with uh, the commercial community in Glasgow, in London, in Edinburgh. And he writes at great length about how businessmen are always trying to collude with one another. Uh, his word for that was combination. Businessmen are always created engaging in combinations. Uh, and in effect, you can think of Adam Smith as the, as the father of antitrust policy, that for the same reason that he thought competition was so important, he was opposed 
to things that interfered with competition. And he thought that one of the great uh, problems in the world he faced was that businesses uh, would collude, combine, uh, uh, conspire, he says, with, with one another. Now, this bears on the modern corporation because to the extent that you have uh, profit-seeking corporations that uh, compete with one another, Smith would have thought that was just fine. But what he doesn't like, didn't like, was the idea that some big corporation is able to dominate a market in a way that would uh, block competition. That, to him, took away the power of the economy to make people better off. I forgot the classic Smith quote, but he says something like, um, as soon as you put two guys in the same industry at the same table, within 12 to 15 minutes, they're already talking about uh, methods of anti-competition and collusion. Yep, you got it. It, it isn't it, it isn't that set of words, but you got the thought exactly right. That that's what that's what he said. And again, this is. I mean, Smith was a professor for a while, but this is not some armchair academic. This is a guy who knew a lot of business people. How do you think about um, – I think one of the critical insights you have is that um, religion and a worldview shapes uh, economic thinking. And we are no longer in an 18th century Enlightenment view. Um, modern religion is way down, and we have new quasi-religions. Uh, I'll call it like belief in climate change or, or whatever – that does not relate to a God-centered universe. Um, how do you think that that dynamic of thought will affect uh, the next generation of economists? Well, I think it absolutely will. But the, the view of uh, scientific uh, advance that I have follow in the book, this is not original to me, uh, is, uh, so I associate it with Einstein, but there are many other people. Einstein had the view that people reason from a world view. Uh, his, uh, in his original German, it's Weltbild, uh, which then became the title of one of his books. But Einstein's view, idea was that before you could do serious thinking, you had to have a world view. The reason was that simply the world is too complex. We just, we just have to have some way of cutting through the complexity. And so his idea was that people have a world view. And he was very clear, this is not just physicists. He said scientists do this, but he said poets do it, and uh, other philosophers, he mentions, other people. Well, uh, where do people's worldviews come from? Uh, in my book, I lay out in quite a bit of detail why it's plausible to think that in the 18th century, when Adam Smith and David Hume were doing all of this uh, uh, really profound work, they lived in a world in which their worldview was importantly shaped by these religious controversies swirling all around them. And now you point to today's focus on climate change. I think that's a perfectly good example. Today's individuals live in a world in which discussion of climate change is all around them, and it just can't help but be the case that their worldview is going to be influenced by that, and then in some way that we are completely incapable of predicting uh, their 
thinking in uh, future years will be affected by the way in which their this uh, attitude toward climate is part of their worldview. I think that's absolutely consistent with the story, even though it's not the same religious thinking that spurred uh, Smith and Hume. And maybe just uh, as a final question, um, we've seen a dramatic decline um, in religiosity in the G7. Um, and it was this original religiosity that gave us the frameworks uh, for economics. As uh, the G7 moves away from these strong religious views, what does that say about the future of I'll call it the embrace of the current economic thinking and, and maximizations, et cetera. Well, here I distinguish very sharply between the United States. What you say about the decline in religiosity uh, is absolutely true of the other six <laughs> members of the uh, G7, but part of uh, what I point out in my book is that the United States is very much an exception. You know, if you and I were having this conversation 30 years ago, we probably would have talked about the so-called secularization uh, theory, and secularization is happening and it has happened really in, in Europe, uh, and of course in Japan, but it sure hasn't happened in the United States. People have moved away from the old line, um, mainline Protestant uh, groups like the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians, but these evangelical groups that we were talking about earlier are absolutely full of energy and thriving and have lots of adherents. And uh, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, there's an enormous amount of activism in the uh, religious sphere in the United States. So uh, now we're getting into uh, a realm in which uh, I'm uh, beyond my scope because I think you need not an economist but some kind of, say, maybe a sociologist to explain and why it is that the United States has proved such an exception in this regard, but we certainly have. Uh, in sociology, the most famous book uh, on your topic is Weber's book on the Protestant work ethic. Absolutely. How do you think about Weber's uh, insights relative to, to your own? Where, where would you say you agree with him and where would you say you disagree? Well, you raise an interesting question because I sometimes characterize my hypothesis as Weber upside down. As many of your listeners will know, uh, Weber famously argued that uh, there was a, uh, an aspect of Protestant religion that gave rise to capitalism, but it's Weber, mine is Weber upside down in that the key driving force for him was belief in predestination. And as I explained earlier, the key driving force in my view is the movement away from predestination. Now this doesn't mean that I think Weber was wrong, and I'll explain why in, uh, in three ways. First, Weber was looking at an earlier period. Weber was looking mostly at the 17th century, when all these American Puritans, for example, uh, walked around believing that they were predestined either to be um, saved or not. And I'm looking at a period a hundred years later when Adam Smith and David Hume 
came into young adulthood and formed their worldview. So one difference is the difference of timing. Second, um, Weber is looking at the influence of religion on economic behavior. He's interested in why these people went off and became industrious and saved their money and were thrifty and so forth and valued hard work. I'm interested in where economics came from in the sense of the thinking of the people whom you and I would both identify if we went through the list of names. We'd both identify them as economists pretty easily. So it's a difference between explaining doing and explaining thinking. And then finally, the difference is that because the people who uh, develop any intellectual discipline and write down their views are necessarily the intellectual elites. Weber is looking at the ordinary run of citizens, and I'm looking at the elites. So in all three of those ways, uh, the um, uh, you know, I think Weber's right, and I think I'm right, and they don't contradict each other. But nonetheless, because Weber is about the effect of belief in predestination, and I'm in the other direction, I think of what I what I've done in my book is Weber upside down. Ben, thank you very much. Thanks, right. Larry. I enjoyed uh, talking with you. Great. So that ends today's program. Uh, I just want to make a final plug uh, for our next week's program. We're going to cover two topics. Uh, we're going to cover uh, antitrust in the Biden administration. We have three speakers, uh, Josh Sovin, Doug Malamud, and Fiona Scott Morton. And then our second topic is game stock. GameStop stock and the craziness associated with the volatility of trading in that individual stock. We're going to have Randy Cohen from Harvard Business School, Julio DiPietro, uh, formerly of Citadel, head of convertible bond trading, Marcy Engel, the former general counsel of Salmas Smith Barney, Larry Goodman, who runs uh, the council uh, CFS, and uh, David Braille, who runs Braille Asset Management. And with that, uh, our show is over. Uh, I'd like to thank our speakers and our listeners for joining us. Uh, with that, uh, you may hang up now. Uh, the show is over. Have a great week. Bye-bye.